recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. Get a Grip Management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Presented by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and of course, the International Dark Sky Association. This is Starving for Darkness. Hang on a second here, folks. That's right. Hang on a second. Michael Colligan, co-host of Starving for Darkness here. Just to tell you real quick before we get into the conversation, which is super important for you to hear, that you need to go to keystonetech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com, especially if you're a contractor or a distributor, Greg Eric. That's right. And they're coming out with a new exterior line of product, or they have come out with it, and they're going to continue to add to it, and they're dedicated to making dark sky friendly lighting uh, and potentially dark sky compliant as we go. For now, though, they do have a dark sky full cutoff wall pack, a variety of wattages, Kelvin temperatures, and a precision crafted optical lens that's ideal for increased fixture spacing and uniformity. So less lighting fixtures needed because it, it can provide more light out of the one fixture. So check that out. Go to keystonetech.com. That's right. Hold on. Here comes Starving for Darkness. But before, K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Hello, listeners and darkness lovers. Welcome to another episode of Starving for Darkness. My name is Jane Slade. I'm here with Michael Colligan, and we are so excited to have Robert Dick here today. Robert is a lifelong educator. And he conveys his passion for the night and to conserve the night to a broad audience from university students to government organizations. Um, I was just looking at your resume this morning. It is vast and long and impactful, and I can't wait to get into everything that you do. Robert is president of the Canadian Scoto Biology Group, or CSBG Inc., and the maker of Eco Lights, which are low impact fixtures with no glare or light trespass beyond the target area and no bio disturbing blue light. So Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. And we start every episode with the same request. I don't know where you'll begin with this question, but please attempt. What is your favorite dark sky experience that you've had that left you feeling utterly moved? It was back in 1972, and it was in a June, in June, and uh, a few of us from Otto, we outfitted a van, and uh, we took the van across Canada, down through the states, visiting observatories and so on, and we're in Utah, and I don't know where in Utah we were, but it was at two in the morning, and we looked up and I couldn't recognize any of the constellations. There are so many stars. It was just amazing. And it was, I've never seen a star that, a sky that dark. And uh, so that's wow. stuck in my mind. There's a few other places where I've seen remarkable sights. Uh, the second one was in, in 2000, sorry, 1976 in Australia. And uh, what we did there, we're down for the solar eclipse. 
and we, um, am I getting the years right? Yes, I am. And we were looking for a dark sky. We drove down a dead end road um, and it turned out to be right next to a cemetery. So it was very quiet. And uh, at that latitude, the Milky, the, the, the pole of the Milky Way passed overhead. So you literally would look around the horizon and you saw the Milky, the plane of the Milky Way just above the tree lines. And it literally made you feel like you're standing on the plane of the Milky Way looking out. So those are wow. the, the two main ones. That's incredible. I, I think that experience is so meaningful and I wish everyone could feel that on a daily basis. And that's so much of what your work is about. So you're the principal of Canadian Scotobiology Group. I looked up what Scotobiology is today, and it's specifically, it's a study of biology directed around darkness specifically, as opposed to photobiology. Uh, so do you have anything that you'd like to add to that definition? Well, the, 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 the sweet phrase I come up with is it's the study of the biological need for periods of darkness. And as you point out, mm. it's, it's, it's really the same as photobiology almost, but you have a different take on it. For example, early research in greenhouses, for example, going back around oh, 1920s, 1930s, you had people studying the plants and they would notice that some plants did well with all night lighting and some didn't. And so their conclusion was that, well, you can't, uh, we, we can't extend the, uh, the growth period of such and such a plant. Rather than concluding that light has a profound effect on the growth pattern, they took a more of a, I suppose, a agricultural or economic point of view. And that is only since, that cha that's only changed, I suppose, in the last 20 to 30 years when people recognizing that if you change biology, chances are you're going to change it for the worse. Mm. Well, because everything's been nudged into place over eons. So there's this beautiful balance that has been found over a time scale that cannot be reproduced in the tinkering of humans. And, you know, and so much of what I say about current lighting design is, is with the idea that if I have a hammer, everything is a nail. And so we're only really designing with light. And that's why I think your work is so important because there's so few examples of people who use darkness as a starting point. So let's dig into your lights, these eco lights that you design. What, tell us about what they do, why you designed them and the story behind them. Well, the story is unfortunately that I'm an engineer, I'm not a business person. And as a result of that, um, I was dragged into this somewhat. And as a result of mm -hmm. that, the, um, the, I suppose I'm a reluctant person because I'm an amateur astronomer starting uh, at the beginning. And of course, light pollution is, not, is something that amateur astronomers and professional astronomers don't like. So everything had to do with the, the, the be able to see the stars better. But then in 2003, I went to a conference and it was loaded with biologists and botanists. And as a result of that, they uh, I learned that really it's got almost nothing to do with astronomy. If you, you think about astronomy, less than a tenth of a percent of the people uh, in the population really have that much of an interest in astronomy to 
to to read articles or study up on it, whereas 30 to 70 percent have an opinion on or are interested in the environment. So if you go with the numbers, um, really you should go with the environment. So after starting the the Dark Sky Preserve program in Canada and the, the Light Pollution Abatement program, we essentially pivoted and went on biology and. Per, and using biology as a reason for reducing light pollution instead of astronomy. Well, hmm. that led to work on finding out how much light is enough. Do you, how low does how low do you go? And and that resulted in a study lasted about five years on the biological the, the impact of light on biology, uh, behavior of animals, and so on. So it's interesting when you mention people now thinking about starting at darkness and working their way up. That's critical because. Uh, if you start at the top and work down, for example, urban lighting and work down, you only get down maybe about 80 to 70 percent down from 100 percent. If you start from zero and start working up so that you can see, then you find you're actually you're only going up about 20 percent of the of the urban lighting. So you use literally a quarter of the lighting that you'd normally use in the city. Well, after producing the guidelines, Canadian guidelines for outdoor lighting, I started getting calls from parks that were going to make use of this. And they said, where do you get the lights? And like a dummy, I said, call up a lighting guy. You know, it's no big deal. I mean, you know how much you're going to illuminate the ground with. You can select the light that does that. And they found they couldn't find one. And uh, I called up a few manufacturers to find out why not? And one manufacturer who shall remain nameless uh, said it was impossible. And I suspect they meant that it was impossible with their current line of lighting. So I decided to, as an engineer, I took the term impossible as being a challenge. So I decided to try it. So with LEDs now, which are really the, the, the cure for light pollution, if they're done right, but um, right. but like bought the LEDs that would suit the spectrum and brightness and so on. And I put it into a light fixture and within a week I had it. Of course, it was not working very well after only a week. So it took about a year to make it work well, then another year to make it manufacturable. And then I tried to find out if there's manufacturers who are interested in making this darn thing and nobody was interested. So I figured, well, if somebody's got to do it, I guess I have to. So I end up making these Ecolites. And they're primarily developed for parks. Uh, however, what's interesting is if you go by numbers alone, you can be fooled. What you got to do is take the light out and see how it works. And it turns out the Ecolite works extremely well, almost too well. So you can actually use this little guy as a street light, and it only takes about seven watts. Uh, the reason for it is that the light, the LEDs are well recessed inside, so there's very good shielding. And the spectrum helps preserve your night vision. The optics uniformly distribute the light so you don't have the real bright spot or bright patch right at Nader underneath the light. And so it's very, as one customer said, it's very easy on the eyes and they see quite mm -hmm. well. And it's interesting when you also mentioned about the evolution of human vision and even animal vision, but human vision has evolved for at, at the brightest, the brightness of the full moon at night, and typically more likely starlight. We don't see all that well under starlight, but we do see remarkably well. So what we end up doing is that the the idea behind the um, the the brightness 
if I can get this straight now, is that you, uh, in tech, the most recent technology that affects our, our night vision or, or affects our vision is reading. We need to have fine visual acuity uh, to be able to read. Well, how much light do you really need to read? Now, in this place, I guess I got about 150 lux around, and uh, whereas you can actually read, and my eyes aren't great. I'm, I'm getting up there. And so, but I can read at one lux. And so that's interesting because it's 10 times the light of the full moon. So mm. right away, if you want to use your eyes at night, uh, the moon is fine if you're going to walk around, sort of pedestrian activity. But if you want to read, you do need extra light, and we have to accept that. And the best thing we can do is produce one, maybe three lux, depending on how good or bad your eyes are and how fine the print is on a piece of paper. So that begets other requirements for low-impact lighting. For example, if you're going to contaminate the area, at least limit the contamination. So that comes up with shielding. And mm. if you want to preserve your ability to see into the shadows, well, you have to protect your night vision, which means no blue light, because the blue light will bleach, uh, will bleach your night vision. And it'll also cause your iris to start stopping down and so on, so letting less light into your eye. So there's lots of these little, uh, little details about lighting that most people really never thought of. And I got into that in a rather deep way and came up with a, an, a balance of, of the, the shielding, the spectrum, the brightness, and also the timing that minimizes the impact of the light on the ecosystem and wired all those things into the Ecolite. Hmm. I wish other people to do the same. But what it is interesting that more and more companies are now producing uh, lights with, without any blue, or at least very little blue. And that's gratifying. Um, mm -hmm. They have better marketing than I do, I guess. And uh, hopefully they'll be able to sell them. Hmm. I think it's funny. Or Mike, do you want to take it? Uh, sure. Um, yeah. I just, I want to ask you a question. And um, you said you're starting from the biological perspective, and I know Jane loves that, actually. Um, it's like, yeah, like we, we feel, and as much as the people at the International Dark Sky do great work, I feel like they're, the dark sky, saying dark skies is very limiting to what really the movement is about. It's about darkness. Um, and from your perspective, are we actually starving for darkness? Yes, I'd say we are. Uh, depending on your definition of starving, um, we do need darkness. Um, during the daytime, we need light. In fact, we need light with a lot of blue content. Uh, we need white light, the sunlight, even incandescent bulbs that uh, look white once our mm. brain white balances our, our, our image. Um, they, they're not quite enough. And people in, in there have been studies in senior citizens' home and, and dementia wards that if you keep people indoors, they their 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 symptoms of dementia increase, or at least they don't get better. And what they found in Europe is that they wheel the dementia patients into the east end of the building and look at the sunrise or look at the morning sun, their dementia um, uh, symptoms go down. Statistically, mm -hmm. anyway, I don't know dementia very much. I've got it probably, but I don't know it. That's the nature of it. So that what is occurring is that in the bright light of the day, the 
you're, you're, during the night, hormones are flowing in your body. When you get light in the morning or mm-hmm. get light, then it walks, it shuts down the release of some of these hormones, in particular melatonin, and it starts accumulating in your body, uh, in, in accumulating in your glands throughout the day. Then when the, the night falls and the, um, the, the light level falls below a, a given threshold, then the melatonin is released and the melatonin enables the release of other, a suite of hormones that fight uh, disease, infection, um, reduces, uh, reduces during the daytime, reduces stress and anxiety, uh, and you, and you, and you benefit from that during the daytime. And so there's, and it also, some of the hormones also combat or, or fight incipient cancer cells as well. There's also links with obesity, obesity and diabetes. So if you have blue components of light at night, then the melatonin doesn't get released as soon or as well as it normally would. And as a result of that, uh, you don't have this flood of other hormones going through your body. Now, eventually they do, they do leak out, but these hormones only have a shelf life of a few hours, four hours, five hours, depending on what they are. And so if they're held back, they start to atrophy and get reabsorbed. So when they are released, you don't get the, the right, the same dose as you'd normally get. And as a result of that, even though you might be sleeping eight hours, uh, you're not getting the full benefit of that sleep. And, and so in that respect, yes, we're being starved of darkness. Uh, some of this is due to our lifestyle, 24-7 lifestyle, but uh, that's what we hear in the media. However, if you look at the traffic records, for example, for a large city like London, England, um, New York, or Toronto, then you notice uh, this, this, these two pulses or t- two peaks in the the the, the, uh, the um, the, the traffic density, one in this morning rush hour and the others in the evening rush hour. And what is interesting about that is they only last maybe a few hours each. And of course, during the day, there's lots of, lots of traffic going around. But after about 10 o'clock at night, the traffic just goes, plummets down to maybe about uh, a sixth or so of what you have during the daytime. So most people actually stay indoors. And the people that are out on the road are the people... I suppose, especially in the last year or so, are the delivery people delivering food and so on to the people that uh, that order it in, and and also the essential services, police, ambulance, and what have you. But most people stay indoors, so they're not taking advantage of this 24/7. Uh, but that's the, the lighting is designed. Urban lighting is designed for 24/7 lifestyle, and some municipalities actually forbid dimming after dark after. Yeah. late in the evening some cities some municipalities do allow it but here with light emitting diodes one of the chief benefits one of the main benefits of leds is that you can dim them so they spend a lot of money on on light fixtures but they don't buy the dimming option now granted the dimming option is pretty expensive uh, but once you've written the software and uh, and you've got the control chips and so on it's only about five bucks Per, per light fixture to put in a dimming option. Um, if it wasn't, I mean, if I can do it, any, these big major manufacturers can do it for, and just make it standard. The most obvious, you know, it, Robert, the most obvious case for lighting controls, for connected lighting, whatever you want to call it, Bluetooth, digital addressable yeah. lighting, whatever it is, mm-hmm. the most obvious example, most obvious application 
is outdoor lighting. It's completely obvious. There's so many things you can do with it. Um, and why it's not the focus, um, I think, is a, is a serious question that should be brought up at every convention, Jane. Well, so I often have said, when you think of the term lighting controls, it's actually really incriminating to our process because it implies we're not in control. And, you know, for the most part, controls aren't really added to specifications. And quite frankly, it's an innovation to turn lights down or off in our exterior lighting world right now. And Robert, I think it's really funny what you say when you talk about um, LEDs are the cure if done right, because it's really interesting that our um, solution is also our main problem because the ease of LEDs are so, they're so easy to, you know, we, the three of us could go out and pick up an LED and shine it up in the wrong direction in 20 minutes and be back and still finish the podcast because it's that easy to do. So, but at the same time, my long-term dream is along the lines of what you're doing with designing fixtures that limit the bandwidths for human visibility and the impact of, uh, on wildlife. So there, if we can fine tune and curate these wavelengths, it's a magnificent opportunity. But we're, right now, because we're using LEDs without any sense of limitation, it's actually our curse. So it's just funny that the curse and the cure are actually the same technology. So yes, I and, but you know what? Yeah, but you know, you, before before Robert jumps in to respond to that, I loved your line where it's change is almost always for the worst. You know, yes. I think that's that's so true. You know, and, and you know what what um you, what you had said, Jane, about tinkering, human tinkering. I think that's a great way to look at it. Except that you know the tinkering leads to problems. And then you had mentioned on a previous show about you know how much you enjoy the idea of rewilding and how that mm -hmm. you know goes into it. Um, how can we as an industry because you know, Jane's working on the advocacy and the awareness side and, and really, and, you know, along Jane with your, you know, a dark sky, what is it that, um, for on the solstice? Dark sky night. Dark, dark sky, sky night. night. So Jane's doing a dark sky night where, and it's a long-term goal. She's going to try to get everyone on the winter solstice to turn off all their lights. So, and, you know, come, hopefully we get a nice bright sky of stars, but, you know, and I'm working on the industry side, trying to get the industry to, to buy into these ideas and, and getting committees together and that sort of thing. How do we do this so that it's we actually get progress and we actually make things better, Robert. That's really, really hard. <laughs> uh, sad to say that um, because there are things, these things called best practice, and uh, that mm -hmm. is what the cities and municipalities default to. Because, well, frankly, best practices are good ideas, generally speaking, because you don't want to make the same mistakes we made 20 years ago. So you learn. These are written into building codes and what have you, and even lighting codes as well. But, and to change, that, uh, it's, even though municipalities can't really be su successfully sued very well, the Municipality Act protects them, they are still really, really scared about making change. So they always, def they almost always default to something that's they did last year, five years ago, ten years ago. Mm -hmm. And the only way that I can see around it is to is grassroots. In other words, advocacy, promotion, uh, advertisements that um, and information that gets to the right 
people, the decision makers. And when you think about it, the public is the ultimate customer for the light. And if they don't like it, um, the municipalities have to be made to listen because they are servicing their client in some way. In fact, they're even spending their client's money to put up these lights. Now, you might remember, um, I guess, 10, 15 years ago when light emitting, uh, when LED lights started coming out, you had to have 5,000K or 6,000K color temperature. And what they looked like were essentially the, the good old-fashioned Cobras. To their credit, they actually were full cutoff, unlike a lot of the earlier Cobras that had the uh, the drop. Uh, hang on, hang what do you, what do you, what what do you, are you talking about early LED outdoor pole lights? Yes, uh, yes, earlier uh, LED LED lights. They were very similar in styling to Cobras, mm -hmm. um, and they didn't work very well. Well, I have, they, 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 there's a principle that they had, and that was the brighter, the better. The whiter, the better, and the more uniform and the more the spread, the better. Mm -hmm. And, yep. you know, and I'll tell you, the industry, and, and, you know, I call it the DLC all the time. They, they've started their Luna program. But, you know, led by, led by um, accreditation agencies, th those principles were stacked on top of every lighting ordinance in the United States and Canada. Yeah. Yeah. They just said, no, no, the lighting ordinances are wrong. We're right. Let's do this. And also, the there's municipalities that say, are you listed uh, DLC? And no, are you approved by the DLC? DLC doesn't approve. Oh yes, they do. Well, it's it's all the the, the what the municipalities are being told is not necessarily the entire truth, and they default to whatever they had. Now those early LEDs, um, they were uh, first of all the the, the style or the design of a cobra light is to keep partially to keep that lamp hot because it's got to be kept warmed for to work leds are the exact opposite and it's almost as though the light fixture manufacturers or the designers didn't do the math and they didn't understand the technology so as a result you had some of these earlier products they're dying in three months because they cook and and unfortunately, that's that has, or fortunately, that's changed. There's one manufacturer that had uh, that mounted the the circuit card in the middle of a space that was sealed, and they called that the, that they called that the the cooling space. Well, actually, it was an oven, and the we don't see them anymore. So, but the the new ones, new LEDs, the new the new luminaires, they're much better designed. Uh, they are much better if only they had an option to reduce the brightness and change the 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 color well fortunately the the color of spectrum is being changed you can dim them however most of the the, the ones that i've seen dim down to maybe 70 percent and i think they picked that because of the uh the 70 percent um, degradation in the light output over life whereas the eco light goes down from 100 percent down to zero um, so yeah, it's literally so... one nice thing. One nice thing about the the Equalite that I found by talking to Parks is that they had a dog's breakfast list of lights for every application, and this thing does everything for them. Um, granted, you could probably get a five dollar light to to light a path, and this thing costs a lot more than five dollars. But the thing is, you have a single object on your on in your inventory. Sorry. So Robert, ahead. let's talk about color for a second, because you say that there's sort of an ideal spectrum for night vision. Mm -hmm. um, so what is that? Because there's there's a lot of debate uh, about color. Okay, there's a, well, let's, let's just see what, what white looks like. That's white. 
Um, oh, and this, this is the way you usually see it down down on the looking down the street. Now, listeners, the just first so thing... you know, Robert is is aiming a flashlight at the screen. So if you have the video option, you can see that. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, thank you. That's a good point. And so all you have to do is shield it, and suddenly the the the, the glare goes down considerably. Now you can see a lot more mm -hmm. just by totally. covering up the glare. So so the most important thing to do on this picture is make sure you don't shine light in your eyes. Now, but if you look at Amen, this point, brother. This, Amen. To now 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 watch this. Put that on, and uh -huh. so I'm just got at the same angle. You notice a difference in apparent brightness. Is now, that a that's phosphor not because, shield, by the way? Uh, nope, nope. It's mm -hmm. uh, it's even simpler than that. But uh, okay. so the, the white light has enough blue light. This has uh, this is a pretty high temperature light, so it's got probably about twenty, twenty-five, maybe thirty percent blue. And by putting this little filter in here, you cut out all the blue. And so mm -hmm. you're losing 30% of light if this is emitting 30% blue. But what you've done is you've cut, you've cut the glare down by a factor of 10. So well, there's also this another is factor this... with, with color. So that would be 10,000%. A factor of 10 uh, is 10 times, right? Am I correct? Yeah, that's 1,000%. That's 1,000%, a, that's a okay. Yeah. So... So when we measure lighting, we often do it. I think you're going to find this interesting, Robert, and you probably already are well aware. But when we measure lighting, we do it with a photometer that is a photopic meter, generally. Mm -hmm. So measuring based on daytime visual lighting. But humans have scotopic lighting, scotopic vision, and it uses our rods. And so we don't measure according to that whole visibility that humans have. So whereas a meter may pick up only a certain aspect of the brightness, it may actually appear brighter to the human eye because we have actually five sets of photoreceptors. Actually, some women have two red photoreceptors, but that's a whole other story. But yeah, so I'm getting back to your demonstration and you're talking about brightness and the perception of brightness. I think a lot of times we're measuring based on photometers that don't measure what a human eye can see. That's right. The lumens and the and the and the lux measurements are all based on your photopic vision, and and that's literally and even the lighting of a city is uh, the specs are referenced back to daytime vision. For example, here's daytime vision. I put up this thing, and that is amber. What is amber? Well, amber is first of all white light. Of course, has all the spectrum in it. And if you just cut out the blue, so if you have white minus blue, that equals amber. Now, wow. at these high light levels, you're using your photopic vision. You can, you can, you got pretty good color rendering. As you start lowering the brightness down, below about 10 lux or so, you start finding colors desaturate. And as mm. they desatch, and you're going through the mesopic vision uh, portion, where both the the the, the rods begin, sorry, the cones begin to um, become less effective, and the rods become more effective. So, as you go between 10 lux down to maybe one lux, you start finding the colors desaturate. So, this amber light, which some people say, "Ooh, looks lucky." Well, at one lux to three lux, it looks like candlelight. Now, how romantic is that? So it's it's actually not that bad at all to to have that, and yet by cutting out the blue, the um, the your 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 rod vision 
is sensitive to the blue. And so by cutting out the rod, by cutting out the blue, you preserve the, the, the rod vision. Now, some I've seen advertisements by manufacturers saying that white light is great because your, your rods are sensitive to it so you can see better. Well, at those light levels, your rods are bleached. You, you can't mm -hmm. use them and it takes maybe a few minutes to 10 minutes to recover. It's interesting the way the, the rods and the cones evolved because you, we, as hunter-gatherers, we had to be able to see at night. And so we have rod vision to do that. And during twilight, as you go through twilight, twilight, the, the light halves about every five minutes or so. So as your cones, your daytime cones start to uh, be less and less effective, there's time for your rods to build up their sensitivity to be able to see after dark. However, in a city, you go from a light area to a dark area in a matter of minutes. And mm -hmm. as a result of that, you've got a period where your rod, your cones don't work and your rods are blind. So you, you're literally blinded by the light and it takes time to recover. But unfortunately, with the, um, the activity in the city, you don't have that time. So that's where they, even in a park, people start turning on their, their white lights and going around the... Uh, their pathways with a white light. So uh, we have, we have some complaints going... from listeners that we use some terms and, and acronyms sometimes. So oh. I'm going to, I'm just going to quickly give you like a lighting distributor one-on-one -on, -one on scotopic, photopic, and mesopic lighting. Okay. So scotopic, you see black and white. Photopic introduces color and mesopic is like a combination of the both where it mixes it. Is that good for everyone listening? Robert, is that a fair definition? Perfect. I think it's there's part a, of a definition if, because a scotopic is night vision, which is right. black and white. And photopic is daytime vision, which is also color. Yeah. And then the mesopic is in between. Yeah. To throw a bit of, uh, of rock and roll in this, uh, especially with my white hair, um, if you go back many decades to the Moody Blues, um, Days of Future Past, there's a poem in there called Cold Hearted Orb That Rules the Night removes the colors from our sight. Red is gray and yellow white, but we, but we determine which is right and which is an illusion. And that directs right back to the failing of our color vision with night. And it's written by actually one of the members who was a member of the British Astronomical Association. So it was intriguing once I learned about all this, oh my gosh, nobody blues knew about this back in the 1960s, 1970s. So this is not new knowledge, but we're now applying it to lighting. We're now starting to recognize it because who really went out in the middle of the night without any lights where they're, they can take full advantage of their night vision? Well, it was the amateur astronomers, professional astronomers, most people in the city uh, never experience night vision because it's just too bright. And there's a few people with cottages, and I write for a, a magazine that um, that a lot of people in the, the rural areas get, and always trying to get them out of the kitchen, out of the room, out of the building, and just go for a walkabout. And it's a remarkable how well you see. There's some uh, parks, for example, that are taking advantage of this sort of thing. Uh, there's one I went to in most parks, they, they, they pave the, the pathways. So how dumb is that? You know, it's really dark. So you pave the pathway black as opposed <laughs> to some parks that literally put down crushed stone in particular dull, white dolomite. And that path glows under starlight. You don't need anything. Well, those that have already paid the money for 
paving the path, at least paint strips down the side of the road. I mean, highways do that. So maybe that's isn't something it, that paths should do. Isn't it Parks interesting that the the solution for, for park lighting design is nothing to do with light. It's to do with reflection and material selection. And that, you know, we don't even need a light source at all if you are guiding um, the materials to reflect what you want it to reflect. I, I think that it's just such an interesting idea that we, we think of um, lighting design and, and most of it for where we are at right now stops with lights. And you don't even need a light in that situation. You're actually using reflective material. So it's a really beautiful concept. And, and when we're talking about all of this, the fact that urban humans don't experience um, nighttime, it also makes me think of wildlife that isn't experiencing it. And so I wanted to ask you, since you do so much education on wildlife, well, what are some of your nuggets, your bio-eco nuggets that you deliver to people to explain, hey, this isn't just about humans. We are impacting wildlife on, uh, in a way that we, we have no idea how this is going to cascade out into the ecosystem. So what are some of the ecological examples that you give that you see reactions, positive reactions from? Humans are diurnal creatures. We, we like the daylight. We've evolved that way. We got great vision for the daytime. But over half the, the um, half the animals are nocturnal. Over half. Mm -hmm. So the wow. night is critical. And when you change the night, you fundamentally change the environment into one for which no life has evolved. And it's it's kind of scary because the moon's been around for well four and a half billion years, and that was the brightest light in the sky. Yes, it's illuminating white sunlight, but at such a low level, it, your, the, our vision has evolved to tolerate that. If you add something, uh, if you add something much brighter, then that's something that our eyes haven't evolved to. And certainly, one thing we've noticed over the last 50 years or so is whenever you try to re-engineer the environment, you probably screw it up. And uh, we've noticed that with with air and water pollution. And I remember back in the day when you drive through a town and you're choking and they say, well, I'm afraid that just comes with prosperity. And uh, we now learn, uh, we know that's not a good idea to, to pollute the air, pollute the water. And light pollution is just, is just, one, is just one more, but light pollution is so much easier to, to solve. Animals, uh, the, 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 the timid animals, the ones you might see out in the country if you're camping, porcupines, for example, they're very timid and they're easy prey, not you know accepting their 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 quills. But a lot of the timid uh, foraging animals, they don't like light. They're very they're very mm. nervous. You shine a light at them, they run away. And the reason for that is because it makes them visible to their to their predators. And predators like light, especially around the crepuscular time, that's twilight. Um, that's when the predators are out. It's interesting that um, the predators don't hunt throughout the entire night because it's dark. Well, if you add light to the outside, uh, to, to the environment, whether it's in a national, provincial, state park, whatever, you're essentially changing the environment. You're changing the ecological balance in favor of the predators. And so what yes. will happen is this, that they, what, what will happen is the, 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 the timid creatures, they, they learn from that and they move away from where the light is. So they're moving, mm. they're migrating into another 
area, which is already an ecological balance. So they're stressing that environment and there'll be winners and there'll be losers. Unfortunately, we don't know <laughs> who, if it's a proper balance anymore. And it's it's also funny because when we're talking about the moon, the moon is this light source that has also this beautiful 28-day arc. And predators and prey also work with that light. So I had once heard, and I want to get your take on this, that actually the reason why coyotes howl at the moon is because they are looking for the prey, which is now hiding in the brightness of the full moon. Um, do you have any thoughts about that little anecdote? I don't know if it's true. It sounds true, no. but I don't know if it's true. No, I, I, I always thought they're trying to communicate with their brethren, but uh, uh, hmm. it's, it's they animals are not as, quote, smart as we are, but they do have a behavior that's well integrated with the environment and their survival. And um, I don't discredit or, or just don't discount anything that an animal does as being stupid or, or, or silly. For example, an animal um, along a highway, a lit highway, an animal will, will approach the highway from the side, from one other part of their foraging range to another one, and they'll wait in the, in the, um, <clears throat> in the, beside the highway until the lights are gone, and then they'll cross. Mm because they want to see where they're going. It's very, they don't, they don't go where they don't know what's there. And meantime, they're waiting for the cars to stop. And that's, they're literally illuminated by the car lights or the street lights, depending on how many there are. And they're, and then they're, they're, um, they're subject to, to predation. So the, even a roadway cutting through an ecological preserve, a conservation preserve, is actually dangerous. It, that's endangering the, the creatures, not just because of roadkill, but because of the predators that now can come out and see them. In fact, predators learn they just wait in, they just wait in the bushes beside near the gutter, or sorry, near the, um, the, the side of the road, because they know the, the animals are going to be out and trying to cross the road, and they'll pause there. They'll, they're easy prey. So I want to just comment because I actually, so for me, I really believe that there's different types of intelligences. And I know I'm, it's not my own idea. This is well-chartered territory. But the thing is, is I want to push back on something you said, Robert, which is that animals aren't as smart as us, as us because I, for instance, I was bird watching the other day and I saw this bird and it was, it made this like crazy turn and its flying ability was absolutely amazing. I can't do that. And all I'm saying is that, you know, these animals and plants are trying to live in our conception of what we've done to the planet. And yes, they don't read books and they don't talk, but they have such forms of intelligence that we're actually making them almost look stupid with how we've designed our world against them. So I just want to say that there's multiple forms of intelligences. And I know you agree with me as well, but I, I just... I hate to think that people don't give animals and plants the credit that they deserve because we're actually infringing upon them. We've been, they've been around a lot longer than we have. Um, and um, our technology, I think, blinds us. We have uh, what we want. Uh, there's a Canadian singer, Baldy, who, who had a song, uh, when you go to the country, needs turn to be wants. Do you realize when you're away from technology, when you're out of the city, you start realizing that things you thought you needed, no, you just wanted them. But when, you're, uh, when your wants are always satisfied, 
uh, you just take that route. And unfortunately, that leads to some of the problems that um, our culture has, you know, overconsumption and so on and so on. And getting back to the topic, overlighting, because people want to mm -hmm. see at night. And and when, when you have very poor, uh, when you have glare in your eyes, the first thing you want to do is say, if you, well, if you can't see, then, oh, we need more light. Well, it's the exact opposite. Yeah. You want less light. <laughs> And it's a, but it's unfortunately the, uh, I remember talking to a municipality, uh, an official in a, in a city, and he said, lighting is very complicated. We have to rely on the distributor to do it for, to do the work for us. And he's there to sell lights. And um, so uh, that, that disappointed me when I, when I heard that, but it was evident that I wasn't going to go anywhere with that. However, when you talk mm -hmm. higher to more program related people that don't know the technology, then you can pitch the common sense. And uh, we did this back in the, the mid 1990s in the region where I am, we approached seven municipalities and after conversations with their, uh, the mayor of, uh, uh, and comptroller and other higher level people, it was common sense to them that, okay, yeah, we, we got to convert to full cutoff lighting. And five out of the seven did it and the whole region amalgamated and the A's have it. And now full cutoff was, became the, the, the default fixture. And uh, so by talking to the technical people, you actually probably won't get anywhere. You got to talk to the people mm -hmm. that make the decisions because then you can use the common sense uh, arguments, not the technical arguments. When people come to me and say, how can we get the municipality to do this or that? I said, well, just don't, your job is not to design the lighting system. They've got engineers for that. You're the customer, tell them what you don't like and tell them what you like, and then let them do their work. And um, those that try to, argue the technology can be blown out of the water because I, I've seen it and I know it. You you can come up with different spins on the technology, different spins on the metrics that are used. And if you're not experiencing it, just don't even go there. You're the customer. They should satisfy your needs. Mm -hmm. So I, I wanted to jump back to your recommendations for park design. Are there any other, that's such an easy tip that we can offer our listeners if you're looking for a really low impact um, way to see at night on a property, uh, create a path that is well, um, it has a light, light in color so that it reflects light. Um, that's a fantastic tip. So do you have anything else that you would offer? Um, because I just the... want to point out that you authored the Canadian guidelines for outdoor lighting. So we've got you here and I'd love to, glean any information we can <laughs> the all to i'll just do a real short version of that first of all in the scope of that document it says there shall be no light however mm. if the manager decrees it necessary then they shall abide by these guidelines and the guidelines are based upon the i love color. that absolutely yep. love that <laughs> let's start with darkness start with darkness yeah, yes always and yeah. some of the most uh, well-known or uh, respected lighting designers are, are pitching that uh, instead of over lighting or putting in a display on top of a display, 
get rid of the first display you don't want and just put in subtle lighting. So the, the four attributes of light is the, the color or more accurately the spectrum because our biology works on spectrum, not color. Color is something your brain comes up with. Uh, there is brightness, uh, there's, there's shielding, and then there's timing. And so in a park, typically stuff settles down around two hours after sunset. And it turns out that that's actually a pretty good time that even biology uses based upon um, when there's snow in the winter, when it gets cold, when it gets warm and so on. It turns out it's roughly about, there's a tolerance or, or a um, plasticity to their behavior of about two hours, very, very roughly. Um, then there's the, the color again. Filter out that blue, whether you use a, a foil, a cheap foil that this is actually, you get two square feet for $7. I mean, it's really cheap. Uh, you don't have to buy amber LEDs, but uh, amber LEDs will last a lot longer than this little foil here. And then there's the shielding. Obvious, uh, you might have to pop rivet or stick a, a skirt around the light to, to predate the shielding. Uh, on my website, there's, um, I have a terrible, terrible page called the blog and in there there's some examples on how you can how you can get your grandchildren to 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 make a light a shield for a light and if you're using leds or fluorescent lights they're cool you can use cardboard just paint it with a good outdoor paint to make it more durable and then there's the the brightness as dim as you can possibly go now most people don't know what a lux is, so don't use lux. Just say as far as low as you can read. You know that's pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. And what they'll be surprised of is how low you can go. Um, normal in some parks, they are they feel we have to make it secure. They have to make it safe. So we're putting in street lights. So they put street lights into a uh, into a campground, and you can't turn them off. So that's not the way to do it. So what is interesting is when you go to a park that has no money. Uh, they do what they can with what they've got. And that's where I found mm -hmm. this, the crushed stone on a pathway, because first of all, the, when it rains, the rain sinks through the gravel and you don't have puddles. Um, you, or paint the edge of things. For example, if you, uh, when you have stairs going down an incline, paint the, the, paint the edge of this, the, the step white. And, and then also paint the uh, line along the, the railing. Just something simple like that. Retroreflective paint, instead of uh, illuminating it with, a, with an act of electricity, that works well. But don't put it up at eye level. Put it down closer to the ground because that's where the person has their flashlight. They're looking at the path. Mm -hmm. They're not looking up there in the sky with their flashlight. So make sure the, 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 uh, the, the sign is actually low down. And it's a matter of uh, don't use fine print, obviously. Uh, another one is that uh, you should use light letters on dark backgrounds, not the other way around, because ah, otherwise okay. all the white will be act like glare. And this is the same thing with um, rear illuminated lights. You know, they have the, the black lettering on a huge white white frame, and it's hard to see anything. And I have a That's so picture. true. That is so, so yeah. true. The problem is you're not going to be able to see it that well. Would you be able to see it during the day as well? So you have a, so you have like a black sign with white lettering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and everywhere what, is the opposite. Everywhere it's yeah, the opposite. And some, and some companies, they don't use contrasting black and white. They use contrasting colors. 
and that works very well. So you might have blue with yellow on in front of it, something like that. Mm. So it's and it's easy on the eyes. It's attractive, uh, but and it doesn't cost really any more than putting black letters on a white background. Uh, but it, it really adds a bit of punch to 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 the sign. There's a, these methods are common sense to most designers, but it depends upon what the owner wants. As a consultant, uh, I've, I've never really worked as a consultant, but uh, I know people that have. And the rule of the consultant is you have to you have to do what your customer wants. And so if the customer says, give us the best bright light you can, even though the consultant might say that's a dumb idea, well, that's what the customer wants. So you give them what they want. And in some cases, the uh, municipalities will say, uh, will tell a lighting company, uh, reproduce the lighting you did 10 years ago because we like it. Well, who likes it? Somebody likes it. So even though the consultant can say we can do a lot better, okay, we have to do it that way because that's what the customer wants. And it's better for the uh, municipality, for example, to talk to more progressive lighting companies and let them uh, don't ask for what they did before, but do it better this time. And yes, it might cost a little more, but you're building for the next 30 years. You better do it right. Robert, I love the way that you talk about these guidelines because as you said earlier in the show, you know, you can't go by a photometric analysis, uh, you know, a layout, because that doesn't tell you what the experience of that light is. And your your guides are really more talking to each person in their experience. So can you read by that light is such a great question to measure by. And that allows people to tinker with it themselves and to see, okay, well, how low can I go? And so by describing it in this more experiential way, which I think is really lacking in the lighting world, because we're always talking about, you know, foot by point by point calculations with foot candles, as if that in any way shows what the light would feel like. But your recommendations are not only easy on the wallet, but and, and easy to implement, they're not complicated, um, but they are also in the recommendation themselves, asking the user to experience it and educate themselves in the experience of it. So it's very powerful. And I think the when you're designing lighting, you have to do it yourself. For example, in the development of the Ecolite, I was measuring the light distribution pattern. And it was out in the country because there's no, no artificial light where I was. And then there's a shriek, a whimper, a sh shriek, a cry, a whimper, and silence out in the field. Uh, one animal turned into another animal's dinner. And I turned my head around here. I was bathed in the light of this, virtually a street light. And I turned around and I could see the Milky Way. So not only was I being bathed by the light of a, a light fixture, but I could still see the Milky Way. And that shocked me because I never thought mm. that, I, I never even occurred to me. Then you go back through vi studying vision, it turned out, oh, because there's no blue, because of this, because of that. And it made all the sense in the world. Be, and it's just, an observation so when you stick to the when you initially stick to the metrics and the numbers and and the technology you can you can miss the point and uh, you have to then take that light and see what it's like in the real world uh, to see if it's too bright too faint and you might find other ideas that you can apply to to make it even better um, again 
the, the Ecolite kind of evolved from common sense. Actually, it initially evolved from biology, and then it evolved through common sense into something that is practical. And as opposed to just designing by technology and applying that, uh, we miss so much of the subtlety when we just look at the numbers in the table. I think that's so true. And so my background's in totally. interior design and I, I taught interior design studio to students and I was always urging them, don't design and plan. You don't experience in plan, mm. but a lot it's, and I had this too as a student, which is that you, you want to get the spacing and the, the, the space planning done in the floor plan, but you experience things in elevation and in section. So you miss this whole experiential quality as a designer if you don't break it out into the 3D. And I think I'm saying all this, which is to say that you can't just design from the RPs and the codes and a point by point calculation because it totally misses the experience of the light. And yes, you can render it. And, and I think that's getting you closer to be able to feel the light in a computer software. But I think we really need to bring more ways to have experiential tools for lighting designers to give them uh, almost more of, um, of a push to lower the light levels because otherwise you're just stuck in these codes and recommendations that are really too high. There's a, I, I set up uh, one of the Ecolites when I was visiting a, a town and uh, near a dark sky preserve trying to urge them to, to reduce the, the the sky glow over the over the park and I set up this in a in a in a in a large field that was within the, the town and they have to drive along a curved road with lots of actually they were brand new LED lights that were terrible and they get into the field I turn on the light and they could, first of all, you draw their attention to what they can see because they're not used to looking. Most people don't understand mm. how to see things. So you just look across and you start describing the tree line. So they're looking across the illuminated area to the tree line and they can see the stars above the tree line and and the, the illuminated area around them. And they were astonished what they could see with only three watts of light. Because what they had out along the roadway was five watts, sorry, 50 watts of light, and they had trouble seeing anything beyond the the bright patch below the light because they were the optics were terrible. And I love but the way that you I mean, call it. I love the way that you call it contamination. That's exactly what it is. You said I just wrote that down earlier. The light's contaminating everything. That's exactly the correct description. It's spilling all over the place. I just love the way that that you use the word contamination because I my father-in-law has a cottage in Bob Cajun. I don't know if you're from Ontario. Are you from? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I've so you there. brought it. Yeah. yeah. You brought in rock and roll. So the tragically hip has a line. You know, I was in Bob Cajun where I saw the constellation <laughs> re reveal themselves one star at a time. You can't see the constellations reveal themselves one star at a time anymore no. in Bob Cajun. No. And and so the cottage is about I don't know whatever twenty or thirty kilometers northeast of Bob Cajun, and the same from Buckhorn, or maybe just directly north from Buckhorn, and you can see the sky glow from Buckhorn, and you can see the sky glow from Bob Cajun lying on the dock, in the, distinctly from one another. And mm -hmm. you know it's I, I, how I don't know how the there needs to be something in our minds that changes about this issue because it's very difficult for us 
Robert, to separate this idea that more light equals safety. More glare. I'm going to say it, not more light. More glare equals safety. If we have more glare, we're safer. Because that's what they're talking about, actually. They're talking about glare. And yet, if you talk to some senior citizens, again, it's, it's, it's almost hardwired into us. Um, as you get older, over 40, 50 years old, incipient cataracts develop in your eye, and they, they develop in the center of the lens. So if you have bright light shining in your eye, your iris stops down so that the light only goes through the incipient cataract. Now, if you get rid of that light, mm. your iris opens up, so that now more light goes through the clearer part of the lens. But if you always have the bright light shining in your eye, the senior citizens will say, oh, I can't see anything. Uh, we need more light. Uh, it's always the default need more. And it doesn't seem to be in our vocabulary that you need less. The, uh, it's not intuitive, I, I've been up, unfortunately. No, it's, it's not counterintuitive. Oh, I got, I got another one for you. I got another one for you. Ready? Similar sure. idea, right? Well, we want to put lighting controls on the lights so that when you know, so car pulls in the parking lot or whatever, the lights will go from thirty percent or ten percent or off to on or what have you, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. But what about the criminals? Yeah, the the occupancy they see criminals and non-criminals the same. You know, like it will see the criminals and like the criminals are not immune to the, the sensors. It will see them too. And so you hear like, like when I say that, I've literally said that to probably 10 people in my life and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's how it works. It's a sensor. It sees movement. It sees occupancy and criminals and it, are occupants. <laughs> if you open the country, people also, uh, they, they have their recreation recreational property and they leave the lights on when they're not there oh and i've, I've got a few beacons along the the part uh, the, the lake where i am and so what's interesting is that from with binoculars you can see every single piece of furniture and their, oh, yeah. their lawn more and stuff laid out and 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 people what they saw even when they're there they turn their light they go indoors turn their lights on and what is hard to get through to them i mean it makes common sense but you could see that there's there's a there's something in their brain is fighting them because when you go in the only light doesn't provide security it allows the security people to see what's going on mm -hmm. so light on its own without people is is useless in fact that means the the thieves and vandals don't need flashlights so now you free up both hands to, to do their whatever <laughs> their whatever they do and all your stuff is on display, and all you're going to find is when you wake up in the morning, your lawnmower is gone. And uh, so it's, if you turn off the lights, even animals know that anonymity is the best security. And uh, mm. we, as, mm. getting back to what you're saying, the um, uh, animals, some cases, are much smarter than we are, especially when it comes to survival. Yeah, absolutely. Robert, this has been an absolute pleasure. I feel so lucky to be able to talk with you because you're a wealth of knowledge. And I, I guess I have one question for you. Do you think it's possible that we're going to get the stars back by 2030? No. Um, oh. I've learned I've learned for the last 25 years you got to be really patient. Well, here, I'm going to hang on a second here. Hang on a second here. You, you, so, you know, Jane's got a dream and uh so I'm sorry. I'm but, sorry. Hang okay. on. No, hang okay. on. Hang on. Hang on. So, what we're proposing and the paradigm is shifting big time because Jane and I are both embedded in the lighting industry. 
Like we're in the lighting industry. So first off, we got to change the paradigm, Robert. This is going to become the lighting and darkness industry. That's a paradigm shift. And I'm, I am committed on my end to convincing the lighting industry that the darkness play is the most profitable thing that we could possibly do right now. Every single fixture is now in play in the outdoor arena. What are we waiting for? Mm -hmm. Like, what are we waiting for? This is, and also you need more fixtures because you want to have, you, you, you want to, you, oh, you yeah. want to, you need more. You don't want to have the uniformity. You want to have cutoffs. You need, there's so many reasons why the lighting industry should embrace darkness as a, as a, as, as a commodity that can be provided to people. And in the city, what you want is visibility and visibility isn't isn't brightness necessarily it's visibility yeah, glare is not uh, safety glare is not safety can, no there's a, a picture I, I use for promotion where you i put up um unshielded lights along a road and uh took a picture and uh, the picture shows the road it's 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 your eye compensates for brightness too so essentially your your brain is trying to get a good exposure of what you're seeing so i took a picture of that then i put up the eco lights and took the same picture and the difference is that with the with fully shielded lighting, you see the tree line. Sorry, with the ink, with the unshielded lights, you see the lights, you see the road, and you're left wondering where you are. And then when you shield the lights, you can see the tree line, you see some stars, but the tree line really gives you that sense of place. Uh, and, and that once you have the sense of place, you mm -hmm. feel more comfortable, more safe because you're able to see so much a moon, under moonlight. You can see, well, 40 acres. Uh, whereas if mm -hmm. you put a light in that shield, mm -hmm. in that field, you can see maybe three meters by three meters. That's yeah. The it. depth, your depth is gone when you do that. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll share a story. I've said it before. Yes. There's an airport that's along a major, a little small airport. Now, the, the lighting, it's the only dark sky area in, in north of Toronto, in Toronto at all, because the planes can't have the glare, so they have low Kelvin temperature, and the lights are like oh. six, feet, six feet tall, and they're f not full cut off, but they're mostly cut off, and oh. that's the clearest spot of the 404. When you're driving up the 404, <laughs> it's super clear to see. The rest of it's all these glare bombs all over the place. You don't have any sense of orientation of where you are or what you're doing. I completely agree with you, Robert, 100%. But I disagree that we're not going to make it happen by 2030, Jane. We're going to make this thing happen, Jane Slade. Well, we're going to make this thing well, happen. Robert is, I get, I totally get it. I mean, you've been in the trenches. I mean, I think it said you've been doing your work for 55 years. So I, I think you've seen it all and you've had a lot of difficult conversations and you've paved the way for me and Mike. And so <laughs> let us help. And, you know, my, my great work is, is trying to, my, my great task is to try and romanticize darkness in all mm. of its beauty and wonder. And and to let people know that there is an answer to this blitzkrieg of information that's coming through our phones and never lets up. And that is to restore darkness in our lives and our daily lives. And so to circle back, I know you had switched from the basis of your your argument for darkness from astro from astronomy to biology. And where I am taking the baton is to say, well, I love wildlife, as you know but it's not enough and it's never been enough. And actually we have to incentivize humans 
And there's a, there's a lot of harm that's being done to the way that we think and the way that we feel because we're always in constant brightness. And so my goal is by reminding people of the darkness rituals that are possible to bring back into our lives, we can incentivize humans to bring darkness back for wildlife. Let me put, let me put my comment in, in a context. The, what we have, think about air and water pollution. Now it's common sense because mm -hmm. it's a, because it's been one or two generations removed when it was impossible. And now it's getting, now we're introducing light as being a pollutant. And surprisingly, we suddenly have a relatively inexpensive solution to it all. But still, we have to let the existing gray hairs retire so that the newer people that understand this can take their positions. And that's why it's a changeover. I come up with a, a long lead time because you got to change the generation that are do that are mm -hmm. the uh, movers and the shakers. Um, both of you are younger than I am. So I hope you'll be the ones that succeed where we failed. <laughs> well, you didn't fail. You paved the way. And we're so thankful for, for this conversation, for all the work that you've done. And mm -hmm. um, we just really appreciate it. So thank you so much, Robert. Robert, thank, thank you, you for very being much a guest. for having me. Thank you. Take care. Psst. Psst. Hey, don't go anywhere yet because we have some instructions for you. It's Michael and Greg from Get a Grip on Lighting. Yeah, we do the ads for Starving for Darkness. You got to go to KeystoneTech.com. That's K E Y S T O N E T E C H.com. Light made easy, Greg. You've been rattled that off real well. Uh, there's a new line of exterior fixtures from Keystone that they have available, and they're going to continue to expand on it, and they're doing things right. And one of those that they're doing right is in their wall packs, they're making them full cutoff. That's going to eliminate undesirable sky glow and glare. And that's what we all want. It looks nice. It fits the profile of a lot of your old nasty fixtures and has multiple wattages and kelvins that can cover you there. Get rid of those old nasties. Go to keystonetech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Thanks for listening to Starving for Darkness. Bye for now.